This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com, that's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Good evening, Europe. This is the North American Continent Live via AT&T Telstar, July 23rd, 1962. 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time are convinced that the ability to portray immediacy, to realize what's new, what's going on, is the true significance of this new communications bridge. These first 18 minutes will attempt to show you a few of the things that are going on right now on the North American Continent. We have just been informed that this baseball game is being seen in Europe right now over the Telstar satellite. Let's give all the baseball fans in Europe a big hello from Chicago. And so began on July 23rd, 1962 the first live transatlantic broadcast, beamed courtesy of the newly launched Telstar satellite into millions of homes across the United States and Europe. For those able to tune in and watch the momentous occasion, it was impossible to escape the giddy sensation that they were witnessing something of the world changing forever, right in front of their eyes. As Telstar engineer James Early later remarked, The moment revealed unmistakably that all of humanity were members of a single global community. Of course, not all of humanity would necessarily have felt themselves reflected in those first few images, let alone all of those who made up the respective populations of the nations receiving them. But certainly, never before could an awareness of the simultaneous existence of distant others with which we share the planet been so profoundly felt. It was an ironic turn of events in some ways, since both the United States and the Soviet Union's space programs, which led directly to the development of satellite technology, had been initiated by those in power, not for a collective benefit, but rather to foster a respective sense of superiority over the other. And yet here, embodied in the revolutionary Telstar satellite, was not a tool of division, 
but one of unity. Almost inadvertently, we had been given what remains today one of our greatest mechanisms for communication, and one that ultimately enabled us for the first time to really see each other. The Telstar satellite was very much a tool worthy of the spirit of the age, and one that perhaps couldn't have come soon enough. Barely four months after its launch, the Soviet Union and United States governments brought the world to the brink of nuclear war. For this was the 1960s, a wildly turbulent decade characterised by complex and often violent social upheaval on a global scale. Of multiple nations forging new identities from the ashes of the Second World War, with many having only recently been unshackled, superficially at least, from the bonds of colonialism. Its strange mix of animus and optimism being no less than the reflections of an entire planet grappling with its future. And everything was up for grabs. It was also a decade when younger generations felt more empowered than ever before to genuinely challenge the status quos of old, whether it be through the music of the day, the proliferation of recreational drugs, or ordinary political protest. A decade when swathes of teenagers and young adults, using whatever tools they could, took one collective look at the world they had inherited and said no, thank you. Perhaps it was fitting then that the person who would deliver the first official address on live satellite TV during that July 23rd broadcast would be President John F. Kennedy, the youngest ever American president elected to office. His message to the world that day was very much in keeping with the spirit of communication epitomised by Telstar, as he celebrated the power of this new technology to potentially bring us closer together. Sadly, in a turn of events that couldn't better encapsulate the tragedy of the human experience, barely eight months after Telstar's launch, this mighty symbol of unity was destroyed by the radioactive fallout from a high-altitude nuclear weapons test. But it was ever thus. We rise, we fall, we rise again. And so too did the Telstar. When in May 1963, its second incarnation, Telstar 2, was launched into orbit. By the autumn of 63, a total of 13 satellites had been successfully placed in orbit around the globe. Though small in comparison to today's models, if you happened to be gazing up at the right time on a clear enough evening, you might just have caught the odd sight of one, drifting strangely in the sky, like a star suddenly loosened from its moorings. Such a sighting at the time would nonetheless have been a rare occurrence, and one that no doubt had many of those who might have glimpsed one, perhaps believing it wasn't a satellite they had just witnessed, but something a little more otherworldly instead. At least that was one of the many suggestions put forward to explain a sighting of an apparent UFO made by four British teenagers 
on their way home from a dance one November evening in 63. Such a suggestion, however, barely scratches the surface of just what exactly happened next. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. The village of Saltwood in the southeast of England, located less than a kilometre north of the Kent coast, is perhaps best known for its eponymous castle. Built sometime in the 11th century CE, it was in Saltwood Castle on one cold night in December 1170 that four knights of the realm, Sir Hugh de Morville, Reginald Fitzurse, William de Tracy and Richard Le Breton took lodgings on the eve of committing the most infamous assassination in British history. The following day, the four knights made their way to Canterbury Cathedral under orders from King Henry II to apprehend then-Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, who was accused of undermining the king's recent efforts to limit the powers of the church. When Becket refused to accept the knights' authority to arrest him, they responded by slicing off the top of his head and dashing its contents across the cathedral floor. Understandably, such history has a knack of lingering in places like Saltwood. Much like the talk of ancient bloody battles that are thought to have occurred on the land surrounding the village from as far back as the Bronze Age. That and the existence of numerous Roman and Anglo-Saxon burial sites nearby only served to intensify the belief among some local residents that there were more than just a few ghosts that haunted this quiet corner of the British Isles. It is little surprise then that such things might have wormed their way into the minds of 16-year-old Jenny Holloway, her boyfriend John Flaxton, and their two friends Tony and Mervyn, as they made their way home on that chilly evening of Saturday, November 16th. But all those familiar old tales they knew of ghostly legionnaires and ladies in white were so passé. This was the 60s after all. It was time for something a little different. Here they come now, on their way to nearby Sandling Station, approaching the last streetlight on the edge of the village. Let's join them as they step beyond the reaches of its soft sodium glow and into the dark of the Kent countryside. It is nearly 9pm when the four friends draw up alongside the playing fields of Saltwood's Brockhill Park school, trying their best to ignore the ominous silhouette of the gloomy old manor house at the back of the premises. The house, along with the rest of the site, had once been part of a vast private estate belonging to the Tawney family. After inheriting it in the 1880s, the estate's last owner, William Tawney, considered by some to have been somewhat of an eccentric, was said to have been a recluse, rarely seen by anyone other than the property's caretakers. Even as far back as the late 19th century, Brockhill Manor was known to the locals as the haunted house. In days gone by, those who dared to get close enough to look inside 
would be treated to the intimidating sight of a huge polar bear, raised up on hind legs with its teeth and claws bared, and all manner of other animal skins dotted about the place. But it was for the small patch of woodland located just behind the house that the most elaborate tales were preserved. For it was there, at the foot of Chesterfield Wood, on a small island in the middle of a private lake, that the enigmatic tawny was laid to rest in the autumn of 1903, along with his dog, Daisy, who was killed and buried with him, as per his final request. Tawny's ghost was said to haunt the island and surrounding woods, the same woods, incidentally, towards which something peculiar was now falling from out of the sky. John is the first to notice it, alerting the others to the bright reddish-yellow light that he assumes to be some kind of shooting star. But just as it looks as though it might smash into the ground, the group watch with amazement as the peculiar light appears to slow down suddenly, then hover for a moment before disappearing behind the trees. Growing a little unnerved, the group hurry on toward the station until, approaching a bend in the road known as Slaybrook Corner, John notices a strange hazy glow coming from the direction of the woods. Turning the corner, they catch sight of something resting on top of the hill. At roughly 20 feet wide in diameter and oval in shape, it appears to be lit up from the inside. As the friends continue on, all the while keeping their eyes fixed on the object, they struggle to shake the distinct feeling that whatever it is, is watching them. A short time later, with the group having come to a dip in the road, they have just lost sight of the strange object, when a figure suddenly emerges, stumbling into the road, 30 yards ahead of them. The group freeze as they watch the silhouetted outline of what seems to be a man in a cloak, carrying an old-fashioned hurricane lamp, the light of which flashes intermittently as the figure shuffles slowly forwards. When they strain for a closer look, however, they soon realise their mistake. It isn't a cloak that the man has on his back. It's a pair of wings. And where at first they had assumed the man's head to have been rendered invisible by the lack of light, the more they look at it, the more it begins to seem as though there isn't a head at all. Too afraid to move, the friends watch in stunned silence as the figure disappears over the rail track before running to the safety of the station. After seeing Jenny onto her train, the boys make their way back to Saltwood Village, but see nothing again of the strange figure or glowing light in the trees. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. 
Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. When John Flaxton first recounts the story to his other friends, he is convinced that he saw a ghost. And before long, news of the peculiar sighting begins to spread amongst the kids of the local area. However, the following Friday, news of a very different kind was beginning to filter through to Saltwood Village, and indeed, the rest of the world. For viewers of BBC One, the announcement came through at shortly after 7pm UK time that President John F. Kennedy of the United States had been shot while on a presidential visit to Dallas in Texas. A second newsflash 30 minutes later confirmed that the President of the United States was dead. Thanks in part to the Telstar 2 satellite News and images of the assassination quickly filtered through to the rest of the world. Though some, including far-right elements within the United States, angered by his position on civil rights, celebrated Kennedy's death, a great many more around the world were united in shock. Later that night in Saltwood, another group of friends, this time driving towards Sandling Station, also witness what they at first take to be a shooting star. But then, on their way back, they spot a light behind Chesterfield Wood, just as the others had seen the week before. Only this time, they see it rise into the air and land in a field a hundred yards away. In utter bemusement, after pulling over the car, one of the group, 16-year-old Annette Baxter, volunteers to take a closer look. Speaking to reporters a few days later, Baxter described how, shortly after making her way toward the light, she saw what she took to be some kind of a figure emerge from out of it. The last thing she remembered was turning to run, before apparently blacking out. That same night, at a quarry located about half a mile outside the village, the appearance of soft glowing lights in the distance is followed by the sound of engines and music growing in intensity until finally two cars of teenagers burst forth from the surrounding trees. The headlamps illuminate the cavernous space for the briefest of moments as the cars spin round then come to rest at the quarry's edge and the lights are switched off. Inside the vehicles, Cigarettes are passed around as the music shifts and the reedy wobble of a harmonica is followed by two Liverpudlian voices singing in perfect harmony. The kids sing along and turn their heads to enjoy the uninterrupted view 
of a vast, starlit sky above, too busy to notice the strange figure lurking in the shadows, until one of them spots it standing a short distance away from the cars. In a panic, the kids fumble for the lights and switch off the radio. But when they look again, the figure has gone. The following day, as the news and implications of President Kennedy's assassination dominate headlines across the globe, for the teenagers of Saltwood in Kent, there is only one thing on their mind. With rumours of the recent peculiar sightings beginning to escalate, one resident takes it upon himself to try and get to the bottom of it all. On the morning of Saturday, November 23rd, 16-year-old John McGoldrick ventures up into the woods behind Brockhill Park, where, after a short investigation of the area, he comes upon something unexpected. As he would later recount to the UK's Flying Saucer Review, he had stumbled upon a vast expanse of bracken that looked as if it had been completely flattened, as if a huge heavy object had rested there. But that wasn't all. Moving around the space, John came across a series of odd impressions in the ground that looked like huge webbed feet over half a metre in length. Later that afternoon, a strange creature from outer space most definitely did arrive, if only on British television screens. It was shortly after 5.15pm when thousands of British viewers were introduced for the first time to an enigmatic and prickly individual known only as the Doctor, appearing in the first episode ever of Doctor Who. But if the Doctor's arrival had stirred the imaginations of the Saltwood Village youth, already preoccupied with their own stories of visitors from space, it would soon be eclipsed by some even more incredible news beamed in from across the Atlantic the following day, It was hard to say how many exactly tuned in to watch aghast as Lee Harvey Oswald, the man accused of Kennedy's assassination, was shot live on TV by Dallas nightclub owner Jack Ruby. Either way, there were few who didn't hear about it soon after. And only a day later, to cap off one of the most extraordinary weekends in world history, Many British residents watched live again, courtesy of the Telstar 2 satellite, as President Kennedy was laid to rest. And with him too went forever a now quaint and distant age. Only the year before, President Kennedy's press conference had ushered in a new era of hyperconnectivity in the hope that it would foster peace. But in his death, something a little darker of this new world was being revealed. A new media age had well and truly arrived. Author of A Clockwork Orange and television critic Anthony Burgess would later note, we have seen everything now. That impartial eye has looked on murder. From now on, there will always be the stain of a corpse on the living room rug.
back in Saltwood. With all the focus on the extraordinary events that had been taking place in the States, talk of the strange goings-on of the previous week had been all but silenced. 16-year-old John McGoldrick, however, had yet to give up hope of seeing the supposed visitor for himself, and it wasn't long before he would get his wish. It was sometime toward the end of November, around 8pm, that John and two friends made their way along the Sandling Road, when having just passed the school playing fields, John caught sight of what he took to be a tall figure, standing still in the field behind a line of trees. The boys hurried along the path as they fought to keep it in their sights, but as they approached the entrance to the school, they were disappointed to find that the figure had now disappeared. Moments later, one of the boys let out a sharp gasp and pointed toward a corner of the playing field. There, standing motionless in the middle of it, was the tall figure they had seen earlier. Hoping they hadn't been spotted by it, the boys quietly made their way to Slaybrook Corner and into the field beyond. They were hoping to get a more sheltered view of the figure from up the hill, but were soon questioning their decision when halfway up the rise they caught the whiff of something putrid. After taking only a few more steps further, John let out a cry at the sight of the figure that was now standing directly in front of them. The boys immediately fled from the scene in terror, running without once looking back to the safety of the village. With a few local journalists starting to pick up on the story, two reporters accompanied John and his friends to the same spot a few weeks later, where they reported witnessing a strange pulsating light coming from within the trees that lasted for almost half an hour. Neither of the group, however, were quite willing to get a closer look at it. And so concluded the last reported sighting that formed just one of the many strange events that took place in a quiet seaside community in the south of England, one eventful month in 1963. After eventually being picked up by the national press, the apparent sightings convinced a number of UFO enthusiasts to visit the area not long after the initial reports first came out. Despite collating a host of eyewitness accounts from local residents, with many reporting the sighting of a bizarre, winged, bat-like creature, no satisfying explanation for the events was found. And that it seemed, was that. It was three years later, almost to the day of that first sighting in Saltwood Village, when 4,000 miles away, outside the small town of Point Pleasant in West Virginia, USA, two young couples were cruising in a car along the back roads of a local farmlands and wetlands region known as the TNT area. The place was so called due to its former usage as an ammunition manufacturing and storage facility for the US military. More recently, however, it had become a popular spot for kids and young adults from the local area 
to hang out and loose, away from the prying eyes of the town's more senior residents. But that night, the area was oddly deserted. The four friends, Roger and Linda Scarberry, and Mary and Steve Mallet, were just about to head home, when Steve spotted something up ahead by the side of the road. It was some kind of animal that appeared to be caught on a wire and was trying desperately to free itself. But as they drew nearer, they soon discovered it was like no animal either of them had ever seen before. Roger, who was driving at the time, slammed on the brakes and switched off the radio. Then together, they sat in stunned silence as they tried to wrap their minds around what it was they were looking at. The apparent creature had two long arms and stood upright on two legs, looking almost human were it not for its disproportionately large hands. It was almost seven feet tall, with a lithe and muscular body, and from what they could make out in the glare of the headlights, a sort of pale beige in colour. From afar, it had first appeared as if the creature's hand was trapped in the wire. It was only when they moved in closer that they realised it wasn't a hand, it was a wing. Then they noticed the pair of them sticking up behind its shoulders. Having eventually freed itself and then stumbled away, the apparent creature was alleged to have appeared in the sky moments later and chased the four friends all the way back to Point Pleasant. This creature that became known as the Mothman was considered by some, such as famed ufologist John Keel, to be an almost mythological being of indeterminate galactic origin. Keel's best-known book on the subject, The Mothman Prophecies, although dealing mainly with the sightings and subsequent events that took place around Point Pleasant, also speculated that the bizarre sightings in Saltwood, England, three years previously, might have been of the same creature. That the Mothman was possibly a portent of tragedy and death was perhaps one of his more outlandish theories. Either way, one thing we can be sure of, whatever it was that took place exactly in that quiet Kent village in 1963, remains to this day unexplained. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at unexplainedpod. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video 
Anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 